hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's 1867 in small-town America. Your father, one of the Civil War's many newly minted veterans, is joining you on a trip into town, hoping to see one of his good friends at the post office. He walks with the limp he brought home from the war. He puts on a brave face, but you know he's in pain most of the time. The town is quiet today, as usual, tranquil and sleepy, until you round a corner and see a wagon in the distance rolling smoothly up the road right through the center of town. It's an impressive vehicle, the likes of which you don't see often out here in sticks. You can't take your eyes off it. As it draws closer, you see just how large and elaborately fashioned it is. Your father has noticed it too. And as the wagon passes, you read the message freshly painted on the vehicle's side in flashy white cursive. Mr. Mixer's Magical Elixirs, it says. Miraculous cures for all ailments. Beneath, smaller lettering reads, sore throat, colic, frostbite, deafness, cough, bleeding, boils, stiff joints, muscle pain. There's a Mr. Mixer's Elixir for all of it. The wagon continues on its way, driving a few hundred feet further before stopping. Almost immediately, people hop out and begin to set up long tables with what looks to be an array of colorful bottles and flyers printed in the same bold cursive lettering as on the wagon. You glance at your father. Your gaze drops to his bad leg. You shrug, he nods, and you begin to make your way together over to this strange new marvel that's rolled into your sleepy little town. The post office can wait, you think. It's not going anywhere. But miracle cures, you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. Today on the show, I'm joined by author and historian Deb Hunter, and we're going to talk about drugs. Well, drugs from the perspective of Reconstruction-era America. We're going to delve into the charismatic, sometimes shady work of America's proto-pharmacist, the traveling snake oil salesman. Yep, snake oil was a real thing that was sold for medicinal purposes. And yep, they put heroin in cough syrup and fed it to the baby. But perhaps most fascinating of all, performing troops put on a damn good show to flog such remedies in small communities throughout rural America well into the 20th century. But first, let me introduce Deb to you. She is an author and historian who writes as Hunter S. Jones. She's passionate about the history of romance, science, and music, better known as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. She's been involved in academic projects at Harvard University, the University of Texas, UCLA, Vanderbilt University, University of the South, University of Notre Dame, the University of Tennessee, and the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. She publishes independently as well as through traditional platforms and actively promotes the craft of writing through association with the Society of Authors founded by Lord Tennyson himself, the Royal Historical Society, the American Historical Association, the Organization of American Historians, the Society of Civil War Historians, and the Dangerous Women Project. When she isn't writing, talking, or tweeting about kings, queens, and rock stars, she lives in Midtown Atlanta with her Scottish-born husband. And Deb, thank you so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to speak with us today. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Deb, I'd love to start us off by you giving us just a little bit of grounding in our topic. Tell us just a little bit about mid to late 19th century America, the culture, the industries, and America's place in the global economy at this time? Well, you think about America today, 
and how huge we are, how involved we are in everything. But in the early 1800s, the British Empire was really where the buzz was. And America did reap the benefits of that, especially in like the railroads that aided us in expansion, um, brought new money in with the discoveries of different minerals that we have in America. Um, the Industrial Revolution really made America prosper. So all that, of course, set us up by the middle late century for a civil war between the different regions in the country. And um, all of that led to needing more medicines and getting more medicines to people. I'd love for you to take us down to the day in the life of one of these snake oil salespeople. Um, what did their day start out like? What did they worry about having to accomplish in that day? Then, like now, the companies that made pharmaceuticals were very profits-driven. And they sold their medicines through chemist shops. America actually called them chemist shops the way they do in the UK now. Um, and also pharmacies. But they found out that the American South and the American Midwest was highly gullible and that they could send shows out because they had such a sparse population and that people would turn out for these shows and they could make extra money. So they would hire basically acting troops or even local people that lived in a region. If, if you were fortunate enough and talented enough, you might get picked up for a, a national show. But for the most part, you would go out. It was exactly part medicine and part entertainment. What an interesting juxtaposition. I, I mean... Let's unpick that a little bit. Why do you think that was the approach they took to broadening their market for medicines? People were so interested in different cultures. You have to think they didn't have radio. They didn't have TV. Um, telegrams and letters were how people communicated. They were very interested in, um, especially our indigenous peoples. Um, the, the abolitionist wanted to know what, African-Americans did, the, the freed slaves. And you have to think, one thing about these medicine shows, it's where our modern American theater started. They did not look at race. If you had a talent and could do something, you, you could join. So you had wow. men, women, different races. We had indigenous people. It, it was completely non-biased. It was based on your talent to get out there and, and make people happy. And you just happened to be selling a medicine. So Deb, it sounds as if you're describing these medicine shows as places of sort of unique public freedom for people who might have been viewed elsewhere in society as simply other. Exactly. There were a lot of mis or displaced people after our Civil War. And this was one way... We'll just use women as an example. Women at that point not only didn't have the vote, they couldn't own property. So a lot of them in the North, South, and Midwest had been left with nothing because husbands, brothers, fathers had all disappeared, either been killed or just disappeared after the war. These women were left with nothing. So they could either work in a mill for five cents a day, or if they could sing, they could join a traveling show and they could make a decent living. And if, if the stars all align, they might even become famous. Wow. That, that's kind of incredible. I mean, I, I really had no idea about any of this. I mean, I, I think this concept of, of, uh, a snake oil salesman in and of itself sounds like there's entertainment value packed in there, kind of the shock value. Like, what snake oil? Wow. And looking at one of these advertisements that you sent to me, um, I mean, it, it, it cures everything from frostbite to stomach ailments to toothache to, um, I mean, my goodness, crabs, everything. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's really, it's like the one-stop treatment for you name it, whatever ails to you. Um, so were these actors actually knowledgeable about what was 
in this stuff or were they just there to flog it to attract attention and then somebody else is around back from the stage actually collecting the money and handing over the, the tube of liniment uh, how did this actually work the the companies themselves would hire let's say the the main snake oil salesman and he was in charge of the money he he was the peddler he was the one that would talk about the medicine like at the end of the show pretty much always a man um, who would take up the money, make the call to action. You know, you can take this, drink this elixir, and you know, it, you're not going to hurt anymore. Your skin problems are going to go away. Your scalp problems, you're going to stop hurting. So he was the one in charge. Everyone else were mainly entertainers because there again, these small towns didn't have any form of entertainment. They had never seen anything like this before. They had to, they were working on farms or in shops and had absolutely no way to mix with the rest of society because, you know, unless you could get to a train and go somewhere else, which was very rare, these were the only people they could look forward to seeing and having some form of entertainment. And we're talking about a town of maybe 500 people, maybe a thousand, if it was a larger town. The people in the community had never seen anything like this before. They had singers, they had fortune tellers, they had people playing guitars. And you have to think back then, guitars might even have been made out of a cigar box with some strings. <gasps> oh, but wow. Yeah, it, it was something that they had never seen before. They might have magic acts. You know, that's always been... America loves a good magician, magicians and musicians. So how in the world could they go wrong? Um, people that didn't look like them, people that could sing like angels, they could play these instruments. Um, the, so the town would be so excited that they would have them. They would either let them use the local theater if they had one, or they would just perform in an area outside of town. So it was a big deal. It was also a lot like shares, gypsies, tramps, and thieves. You know, it was, okay. it was a wagon show. <laughs> but wow, so exotic. <laughs> it, it really truly was. They would come in, people hadn't seen anything like this, but they had heard about it and they knew that they would be selling medicine. So again, with so much of the population in pain and not being able like we are to run out and buy an aspirin or you know Tylenol or something they really looked forward to these because it gave them a break from their life in rural America yeah like in the most perfect sense so in the moment but then you get to take home something that you can use when the when the high of the show is passed right I mean it's actually genius it's genius <laughs> It is. And when someone's telling you, basically, if it doesn't kill you, this will cure you. Well, of course, you're going to try to find a dollar or 25 cents or whatever, just, just to try it. And again, the placebo effect is real. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. How did relatively isolated populations find out about these traveling medicine shows? They had wagons, they had brochures, they had booklets they gave out with song lyrics before they came into town. Um, all types of advertising were used. Their wagons had their signs on the side. So they were very well known. Um, then you might have companies that would put out brochures before they came into town, might have what we would call scouts going out, handing out brochures. Oh, you know, They'll be in town Thursday and Friday or Thursday only. Um, then during the show themselves, again, they might have someone in the audience that would, they would say, here, try our medicine. And, you know, they would act like they couldn't move their arm or something. Well, by the end of the show, <laughs> oh, they, they, they were cured. <laughs> yeah, they were up dancing and moving around. Or, or even during the show itself, the performers might say, well, my leg hurts today, so I'm, I'm going to try this before we start. They had all manner of showmanship to, to peddle their wares. and Amazing. So yeah. they, would, they would show yes. the audience that this stuff 
quote unquote, worked on the spot? And then what would a little squadron of people who actually were out collecting money pass the stuff around in the audience? Or would people have to queue up afterwards to um, purchase this stuff from the, the ringleader himself? I mean, how, how did money actually change hands? Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a, a gospel revival, but a lot of times it was like that because people were so excited by the end of the show that they would like rush the stage trying to buy this stuff. You're kidding. It, it was just almost took on the fervor of a, a and sometimes they even would have a, a preacher. Um, like I said, sometimes they would have baptizings. This was a, a big deal in, in parts of America. So, they wouldn't queue up. It, they would get the emotions going. And, you know, once people are emotional and believe in something, sure, they might have to work a day to make 25 cents, but they're going to give you that 25 cents because they believe in the product. So it's like Black Friday at a Walmart. What was it about these medicine shows that was so compelling? Things like that can help a great deal. So it, it was beneficial in so many ways to the town's psychology, to um, sometimes to just making them feel better. A lot of times, um, of course, I'm Southern. We have baptizings in the river. Sometimes they would do that. I mean, th this was just like, like a carnival almost. I mean, it, it was a huge deal in rural America. Well, it sounds like it's it's kind of a win-win situation in some respects. I mean, um, we'll get to whether there was any efficacy to this stuff soon, but I mean, at the very least, these traveling snake oil salesmen are fulfilling a very important community need for um, getting together and, and having something to look forward to and being entertained in these rural outposts, it sounds like. That's true. And a lot of people, of course, were in pain. We had a lot of um, America, when I say we, had a lot of people after the Civil War that had been wounded. But I've read as many as 75% of the population from North and South were wounded or harmed for the rest of their life. So, you know, they, they were in a great deal of pain. Um, strangely enough, the women were the ones that had the main addictions to opium and morphine. Oh, mother's little helper. It's got a long history. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? So um, it, it's just, you know, it's a rabbit hole. We could keep going down this forever and try to figure out the thinking behind it. But the truth is it was there. And most of these medicines did contain heroin. They did contain morphine. They did have cocaine, but there was also truly a snake oil. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So where, where does the phrase snake oil salesman come from? Well, thanks for asking. It's really actually based on the workers on the transcontinental railroad where America brought in so many Asian workers, they actually had a, um, a, a snake oil that was made from the Chinese water snake. And it was very rich in omega-3. Oh, so it's real. Yes. It was actually snake oil from it, China. Yes, it actually was. It was very rich in omega-3 acids, which helped with inflammation. So with people suffering from body aches and old wounds and things, this was like a miracle drug for them, kind of like our Tylenol or something. You could take this yeah. very beneficial, very efficacious. So it really worked. And then you reach a point where there's no longer access to a Chinese water snake. So what happens is some guy got the big idea of, I'll just use a rattlesnake. Oh, well, they were local, right? At least in the American Southwest. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So what happened, everybody started peddling their snake oil, but it was American snake oil. So it was like a knockoff snake oil. Exactly. And this is what I found so interesting about this whole thing, that it, it wasn't the drugs that contained the addictive agents we have today, the morphines, the heroines that made the American public cry out. It was the snake oil when it was found out that it wasn't, it didn't work at all. It wasn't efficacious. That is why in 
1906, President Theodore Roosevelt um, had the American government put together the Pure Food and Drug Act. And it was because the public found out that snake oil wasn't the original snake oil. It, it was a placebo. Who really knew that these snake oil salesmen were actually at the heart of so many really important social and um, technological shifts going on in the country at this time, right? Because that, that's a big deal. Was that the first time, to your knowledge, that the federal government stepped in and said, wait a minute, you can't just sell stuff to the public and tell them it's going to be efficacious. We, we need to actually vet this. To my knowledge, it is things happen for a while until someone steps in and says, we have to change this. Yeah. And so how was this a lightning rod moment? I mean, was it that big a deal or was there something else that caught the attention of the president of the United States to issue a statement about it? Well, you think about the medicines they had, and again, I'll go to the open opioids and they they were giving this medicine to babies excellent i bet that made them sleep <gasps> yeah and no there was no uproar about that it was the snake oil that made people that got people riled up <laughs> and made them it's not genuine oil. chinese snake oil yeah. the opium fine because it makes little johnny sleep oh my gosh isn't that something yeah it is wow wow all right you mentioned money and this, I, I have sort of two questions I'd love to ask about that. So people come up with a dollar, what, what have you, how much did this stuff cost, not just in pure terms, but in relative terms to, you know, someone's monthly income or their discretionary spending typically? And did these snake oil salesmen become rich by selling these products to these people all over the country? Well, some did. Buffalo Bill is our best example of taking a Wild West show, as he called his. Uh, he toured Europe. He became, he, Annie Oakley, some of the players became world famous at that time. So they did. But for the most part, um, it was just like our early American colonies. They were settled to make money for the people that had invested in them. And anything right. they made over the cost, the person that put it together got to keep and then he paid his people so it's it sounds like it could range wildly yes exactly yes. and it was all based on region and availability to money and you know so many variables but there were two that were huge here that were the most successful um one was called hamlin's wizard oil company and that one was out of chicago wizard did you say wizard Yes. <laughs> I love it. Hammond's Wizard Oil Company. I would buy that. Well, it was the late 1800s and Queen Victoria herself had made people aware that there might possibly be another side we could connect with. So Americans really bought into all that. So anything seance, again, magic, things I couldn't understand, things that would help them understand it. Um, we, we loved it. Wow. So did, did the Wizard Oil Company sell its products in shows that were organized more around the occult as opposed to the more standard variety show that you've been describing? That one was actually, they had specially designed wagons. This was a huge deal. Um, they had built-in organs for music, space for their musical performers. Their appeal was clean, moral, musical entertainment for the entire family. Clean and moral. Yes, but you All have right. to understand they didn't see anything wrong with having maybe a fortune teller or something like that in a show. That, that didn't have any type of negative effect on people. Was, was this a huge um, you know, splurge for your average person who bought it? Well, for the most part, it was because you have to think women generally couldn't work unless they could get a factory job. And those were mainly in the Northeast or the, the towns in the South. And they wouldn't make a lot of money. A man might make $5 a week. That's why the appeal of the West was so huge with gold 
and if you can discover gold oh, right. or, or homestead a farm, you could feed your family. Um, so we're talking about medicines that might cost 25 cents, which was actually a huge amount of money if you're making a dollar to five dollars a week. Uh, some of the more expensive medicines might cost a dollar. Okay, yeah, so that's a lot. It was an expense they were willing to put back for because they believed in it. They believed it worked. Right. And so if I can just pull us back for a minute to the sort of fine-grained day that this snake oil salesman is having, it's, it's show day. How, how does that day go? What kind of preparation is involved during the day? And, uh, you know, are there more than one show? So just sort of... They'd pull into town. Again, the people in the towns were so excited to have them there. They would generally um, count close to a river, creek, some kind of water thing, so they could they could bathe, mm-hmm. get themselves yeah. ready for the evening. A lot of time, um, maybe like a, a saloon, for lack of a better word, would offer them food. Uh, again, this was a very big deal. They were very welcome in these areas. Um, they would come in. They would get to meet some of the locals. It would almost be like if, if a Broadway show came into a small town today. So the entertainers were little celebrities. Um, they would come in, get ready to perform, get their, their costumes ready for the evening. And basically around sundown, by the time people were off work, they would be ready to start their performance. And how many times would they perform a show in a given area? Did they pull in for, you know, just, was it just the day you miss it and you're done? Or would they kind of hang out for a little while? Sometimes they would hang out depending on the size of the town. And um, we'll use the the Western states. They would have cattle drives. So they might take cattle into Kansas City or Dodge City or, you know, Texas would have centers where they would bring their cattle in. So in instances like that, they might stay in one place for a few days or they might tour the surrounding towns knowing that people would be coming in that would have some extra money from what they just sold. How did somebody become involved in this line of work? Was there any kind of um, training or apprenticeship system or could anybody kind of set up shop? I think it was a lot of who, who knew who. You're talking about a small area. Uh, a lot of them, again, were regional. So they might say, well, someone might say, well, my niece has this ability to sing. Would you take her on this tour? So it, it was really more like that. It was, a lot of it was based on talent. A lot of it was based on who you know, knew, or even what your talents were. Got it. Okay. So for the performers, not surprisingly, it, it's kind of about networking. How about for the salesmen themselves, the, the ringleaders of these shows, I guess, could we call them that? Is that a reasonable way to describe them? That's perfect because they were kind of like an American circus. Um, he was the one that dealt with the company. So he was the one they trusted with their, their money to make their money, bring them back their, what they'd invested and hopefully make enough money for him to keep and pay his employees. Got it. And, and what kind of pathway was there to this job? I mean, how does one end up being a snake oil salesman or, you know, it it sounds quite entrepreneurial for sure, but how did someone generally get into the line of work of, of being the salesperson themselves? Um, a lot of times, and not always, but but often people where they were displaced, they would approach someone and offer to do shows. And if the shows worked, I'll use my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee. If something worked in the Chattanooga area, they might go to the company and say, it's worked here could we take the show into Atlanta or into Nashville or into Birmingham and work the towns between here and there? Ah, oh, so it sounds like, sounds like kind of a franchise type model. Exactly. And there again, if it really worked, you might be able to eventually play Memphis and go down to New Orleans and eventually move out of the South and go into Texas and into 
the, the Midwestern and Western states. So um, they were set up regionally. If you became big enough, you, well, I say regionally, they were set up locally. And then if you became big enough, they would take you into the region. And then the lucky few were able to go, well, the big money was in our Western states, of course, because of the gold and the cattle. Wow. So there, there was just huge social mobility and economic mobility within this big system. Exactly. Uh, and it was a way, again, that displaced people could find a way to fit in and a way to make their own way. That's really amazing. And so what would you say would be the most important skills for a snake oil salesman to be successful? Well, the snake oil salesman himself would have to have that ability to, to sell, to um, be a performer first and foremost, and, and a businessman all in one. Right. Yeah, sounds like it. Because the, the first time that the rattlesnake medicine came about was literally at an exposition in Chicago, and the gentleman just cut up in a rattlesnake right on stage. And <gasps> Really? <laughs> what year was that? <laughs> and he just popped it into um, a vat of boiling water. Wow, that's <laughs> quite an image. So it was like rattling as he cut it in two or what? Or did he just, oh, wow, I don't like snakes. <laughs> well, I, I'm not real sure I agree <laughs> with his method either. Clark Stanley, a.k.a. the Rattlesnake King, in 1897, uh, released a pamphlet about his life and exploits. He was a former cowboy. He told people he learned about the healing power of rattlesnake oil from, from Native American medicine men. And he never mentioned the Chinese snake oil. Where, and you know, I mean, I can tell you as an archaeologist, we have these amazing detailed herbal compendiums from ancient China that go back to the 28th century BC. So yes, <laughs> he was overlooking a very important precedent there. Exactly. The, it's claimed that um, he caused a huge stir at the 1893 World's Exposition in Chicago when he took a live snake and sliced it open for a crowd of onlookers. And it, it was noted in a science, science and society journal out of McGill University in Montreal. I believe it's Montreal. Um, Stanley reached into a sack, plucked out a snake, slid it open and plunged it into boiling water. When the fat rose to the top, he skimmed it off used it on the spot to create Stanley's snake oil. That is just like magic sleight of hand. I mean, how did the crowd react? Do we know? Well, it created a liniment that he immediately snapped up and started selling to the people that were watching him. Fresh. So that gives you an idea of the, the showmanship, sometimes the on the spot things they would do to sell something. That's amazing. It's like an infomercial, right? <laughs> it is. You're absolutely right. So, okay, obviously these people found great success when they were good at it, it sounds like, and the showmanship yes. was as important as the business acumen. How were these people viewed by society? Well, theater people until our age of celebrity and and movies of course movies changed everything but theater people were mainly considered outcast no matter how popular um some were accepted let's say by maybe the prince of wales maybe received by presidents if you know if a singer actress or actor received a certain level of acclaim but for the most part theater people were their own their own people and did the snake oil salesman himself, a, a performer of, among performers, let's just call him like the, the first performer among performers in these particular traveling troops, was he really lumped in with the performers in that case? Or, uh, you know, did people in some sense admire his, um, his pluck and his ability to make money doing this? Well, of course, we're American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Silly question. 
so he he had that showmanship you know we all love a star we all love a celebrity um and he could make that money and if they were fortunate they would set themselves up for life so how were they paid did the companies pay them a salary or did they take a cut off the top and hand over what what they had agreed to pay the company what, what was that compensation structure it was like contract workers today they would be given an amount we here's your investment we want this back everything you make on top of this you get to keep so it really was like a franchise exactly exactly oh. you've got that right wow mcdonald's got nothing on a snake oil salesman <laughs> <laughs> so were there any business partnerships or you know other kinds of alliances between these people that that you've come across in your research I can't really say alliances. You have to think about Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley, how they work together off and on. Um, of course, Annie's husband was also involved in the show. And I, I can't remember his name right now because he wasn't one of the stars, but they they built an empire off that, that that's famous to this day. It's part of Americana. Yeah, right. I mean, those are those are absolutely iconic names in American cultural history, as you as you rightly say. I mean, so the way you've been describing it, it sounds as if it was very much an each man for himself in his traveling troop. So competition versus uh, collaboration. It sounds like it ruled the day. Exactly, because they were competing against other shows. So you wanted to have the most outlandish, the most memorable show so everyone was talking about your group right what about the medicine itself it sounds like in some ways the medicine was kind of an afterthought um i mean was there competition to provide the most effective medicine oh of course we just we'll look at coca-cola that was another one it didn't it didn't have the groups going out it was sold in the pharmacies but there were all kinds of little miracle drinks around that would cure whatever ails you um coke just happened to be the one that became america's drink it started out being pemberton's and pemberton took a recipe added um seltzer to it i believe to to make it fizzy and that was different and people fell in love with it so coke found its origins in these snake oil salesman shows more or less because all those tonics and elixirs were the big buzz no pun intended <laughs> yeah that's so funny well and i'm just thinking well tonic it, it, it's a regional thing right i mean i'm northeastern and it's soda it's not tonic but there i remember growing up there were people who called it tonic so that's a real throwback to the historical roots of that product you're absolutely right it was and they there were hundreds maybe thousands of those little drinks and medicines trying to help people feel better have a coke and a smile <laughs> and quite literally because it did contain cocaine so of course it was going to make everybody feel better but again it wasn't it wasn't the cokes of the world it wasn't the medicines that had heroin in them it, it was snake oil that made the public say we've got to do something to regulate this which led to president roosevelt starting to make the changes that, that we now see what were the risks of this work, Deb? Well, of course, the risk, even the medicines, if someone made a bad batch of medicine, it it might kill off members of a traveling show. Oh, wow. Because part of the act was drinking the medicine, everybody on stage, this is how great we feel. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> so if you've got a bad batch, you know, you're looking at possible death, being sick for a while, not being able to be on the road and make any money. And so that's obviously pretty risky. Um, what's the biggest mistake that one of these snake oil salesman ringleaders could have made in the course of this work, aside from poisoning his entire troop? Well, we'll go back to Mr. Stanley. Um, his biggest mistake was his claims that his medicine was as efficacious as the Chinese water snake medicine. And um, once scientists started finding out that 
it wasn't. And he literally was just peddling something that was a fatty oil with red pepper and turpentine in it. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> that that's what was make that's what was making people's muscles feel better. So false advertising. Yes. Hmm. It, it became a symbol of fraud. And before Teddy Roosevelt issued this statement in 1906 from the federal government, who held these people accountable if they were to try to pull one over the eyes of the, the community in this way? There, things were called patent medicines, even if they did not have a patent. And the public started an outcry, you know, there has to be some way to stop giving patents out if these things really don't work. Okay. So that's when legislation started coming in. And that's what eventually led us to the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. So it was really the consumer who was yes. holding these people to task. That's fascinating. Yes. And, I, and I, I don't know, I mean, this is sort of off topic, but um, I just wonder if you're aware if there were any other areas of consumer product marketing in which this sort of thing was happening at this time? Or was cosmetics. this really? Uh, oh, in cosmetics as well. Okay. Yes. Mascaras were making women blind. They were selling. Mascara lotion. is that old? Oh, yes. Oh my wow. I didn't know that. Oh, definitely. Okay. It goes back for centuries, actually. Uh, they, they would use different, well, I, it may even go back to ancient Egypt. They would use coal on their eyes. Oh, right. Eyeliner. I know. I know. But mascara. Wow. Um, so that's really interesting. So this snake oil and its sale was part of a really huge movement overall in American society at this time towards regulation and um, being transparent about what these compounds contained. Uh, that's a perfect segue to trying to kind of understand how pharmaceuticals became big business. Well, it's interesting you asked that, and thank you. It led into our next Roosevelt president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1938, establishing the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which today okay. puts the guidelines on pharmaceutical companies because between 1906 and 1938, there was such an outcry to make these products pure, to let the public know what they were getting. Um, I'll go back to fashion for a minute. People were getting skin creams that, that were toxic they were getting mascaras that were putting their eyes out. They were taking medicines that could potentially kill you if, if they even worked at all. So FDR established the Food and Drug Administration, and that's what Pharma answers to to this very day. Well, now you actually bring a very interesting bookend uh, perspective to this topic, Deb, don't you? Not just... Um, knowledgeable about the history of the development of the pharmaceuticals in this country, but you actually worked in the big pharmaceutical industry for many years, right? Exactly. And it's so funny how far it's come because everything we said was monitored. We could not make false claims. We had to take tests that we made, had to make a certain grade on, or the FDA would not let us work. Really? And what, uh, please, would you describe uh, in a little bit of detail what your role was in these businesses that you, you had to take tests? Well, if you're going to sell or be involved in any way with a medicine that has to be prescribed in America, you are regulated by the FDA and the OIG medicines have to be researched and they can be researched for 10, maybe 15 years before they even hit the market. And this is one of the problems with cost in America because you can't just go into a lab and develop a medicine overnight. It takes scientists and years of research to make sure a medicine does what it says it's going to. So there again, we've grown a lot from the 1800s. 
what the FDA now has people do is be accountable for what they say and what they do. Once that medicine is brought to the market, you have to be trained. You have to, you're basically given a script that is approved by the FDA. And whether you're a, a VP or a, a rep in the field, you go by those guidelines. Well, I suppose that, 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 that should be reassuring. Um, I mean, in a time like this, when everybody is hoping that a vaccine or a cure for coronavirus will come out quickly, uh, there's frustrations with that. But um, as I think we've learned, looking at the roots of the pharmaceuticals industry, there's really good reason for all these safeguards to be in place and these protocols. Um, but it's a, it's a really big jump between the snake oil salesmen that we have been talking about and this intensely regulated industry that exists now. What were the intermediary steps that bridged that huge gap? It, it's exactly like you said, it was the American public speaking up and demanding change and wanting to, wanting companies to be more transparent. They wanted to know what, what they were taking, if it had been approved, they didn't want to take something that was going to kill them, of course, kill their children. Um, back to the vaccine, you know, things are tested now. They're not just a snake oil salesman putting a snake in a vat of boiling water and saying, oh, look, here's a liniment that's going to make you feel better. We, we, there's scientists working behind the scenes for years on this. How quickly did the snake oil salesman with his traveling troop disappear in America when the scrutiny began to really come down on, on this business from the federal government and not just from local communities? Well, you have to think with the Pure Food and Drug Act coming out, that really put a lot of people out of business. Pretty quickly, huh? <laughs> exactly. But there again, you've got things like Coca-Cola. They simply removed the cocaine and kept their cola and look at what they did with it. My goodness, they sure did well. Um, at what point did the market shift from a traveling entertainment venue to the kind of you know booth we see in CVS today? <laughs> and that's a, a great question. That would have been between the Roosevelt's. Okay, so like the, the early 20th century, first half. Exactly. And of course, then we had World War II that brought out more medicines, more advances in technology, and it brought us into our, our new world of more medicines than we may ever use. And so, you know, obviously, I, I, I think there are alternative outlets on the internet and this sort of thing that people can purchase stuff online. And I think some of that might actually feel a bit like the original snake oil stuff. You're not really sure if it's legit, if it works. Um, you know, so, so the, standard, the, the, the standard avenue to obtain drugs and treatments of any kind is a doctor's prescription. You take it to your pharmacy and you walk out with your your products. Um, when did that system come into play? That mainly started in the 1960s because before then there weren't that many prescription medicines available. There were like diuretics um, and they used diuretics to for blood pressure and any number of things. But in the 60s, that's when drugs really expanded in many ways, isn't it? But uh, that's when it became, you know, I believe Valium came out in the 60s, uh, medical advances, again, due to World War II and the Korean War, had really found out how beneficial it could be health-wise for people to use things to help with blood pressure, to help with anxiety. And that opened up what we have now. The quandaries of the modern pharmaceuticals industry are pretty widely known. Regulators hold drug companies to long, involved, and expensive development and testing protocols that are critical to ensure public health and safety, but themselves contribute to the sometimes astronomical costs that price out those who most need drug treatments. 
It turns out politics plays a larger part in this dilemma than you might imagine. Big surprise. But as such, there are simple ways we can all do our part to start addressing this quandary. Deb, what led to the rise of today's state-funded labs? And do you think it's on balance a good thing for both the pharmaceuticals industry and for healthcare consumers? Well, that's a great question, Karen. Thank you. If you look at American history, we have had pharmaceutical companies since after the Revolutionary War. So it's been a part of our culture for a very long time. If you look at what happened in the early 20th century with the two presidents, Roosevelt, and how they brought about change, it's really up to our, our politicians to approach our politicians and ask them to step in and, and help us out. Yeah, especially if the political lobby and the expense borne by pharmaceuticals companies in feeding the demands of that lobby are as, as great as you say. That, that sounds like it's a really profitable direction for all of us, consumers included, to begin to, to seek the change that we need in the pharmaceuticals industry in terms of affordability of these drugs that are so desperately needed by sick people. Exactly. And you're right. And we are American and, and all politics are local. If you start locally, you can start being the change. I love that. Deb, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned so much. Uh, and who knew that the infomercial to peddle a, a kind of um, sexy but possibly questionable in terms of its efficacy but, you know, product had such deep roots and such a longstanding connection with medicine and pharmaceuticals in this country. Well, thank you. I've had a great time today. As reasonably well-informed 21st century consumers, it may be tempting to wonder how so many were swindled by such carefully staged smoke and mirrors, promising a quick cure for pretty much any ailment you could imagine. When you look at these medicine shows, there seems to be a toxic blend, no pun intended, of bad science and bad faith. But these shows were actually more than just a particularly successful chapter in America's long history of rewarding enterprising individuals peddling questionable products. In many ways, the medicine show was a vitally important social phenomenon. It was a place of safety and opportunity for marginalized people, a welcoming network for those with talent, offering unique economic and social mobility that otherwise simply didn't exist for people like them. These shows were a chance for them to seize the American dream reserved generally for the social elite. As for the gullibility of the eager masses, well, as in the past, that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. And as always, one person's ignorance can be another person's payday. If you want to follow today's guest, you can find her on Instagram and Twitter at the Deb ATL. You can also check out her website at www.allthingstutor.com. Her latest book, a collaborative work titled Sexuality and Its Impact on History, the British Stripped Bear, can be found on Amazon. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.